I suspect that there are few things that show us the depths of God's wisdom as his amazing creation. And I would propose to you that chief amongst them is God's creation of men and women, male and female, how he could actually take two very similar and yet extremely different things and create them in such a way where they were intended to enable us to have a system of perfect harmony and love for all of eternity. Now, of course, you know sin has ruined that. Sin has destroyed that perfect love and harmony between men and women, between husbands and wives, just like it's tainted everything else. And I've tried to express that with the eyes on this graphic because you probably know from firsthand experience, especially amongst husbands and wives, that we tend to see things differently, like this. Honey, where are the raisins? In the cabinet to the left of the stove. I'm standing right here. They're not here. No, they're there. No, they're not. They're there. No, they're not. I know they're there. I put them there myself. They're not here. They're right there on the second shelf. I'm not lying. They're not here. Look harder. How am I supposed to look harder? They're there. They're not here. Don't make me come in there. Okay, I got a lot of problem with this video, even though I chose using it. I find it hard to believe that this is based on a true story. Not the fact that the guy couldn't find what was right in front of him. Be, I'll be honest, more than once, my wife has hidden something in plain sight. I'll walk into our pantry, and I cannot for the life of me find it. I'll express my frustration to her. She'll walk in, and abracadabra. It's there. Somehow between the time I looked and the time she looked, it just magically appeared. That's not the part I have a lot of trouble with. I have a lot of trouble believing that this guy would get himself into this much trouble over a box of raisins, okay? It just didn't make sense to me. The other part is very clear, and I understand perfectly, and is the perfect illustration of what we're going to be studying this morning, how there can actually be something right in front of us, and we just don't see it. And so our lesson today is about a new perspective, about the grace, the mercy of God offering us to see things differently. And we find that in these words of Mark chapter 8. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't go into the village, nor tell it to anyone in town. Now, I'll explain why those last few words are in red, and that'll come towards the end of uh, the explanation of our lesson, and hopefully that'll make sense once we get there. Um, one of the things I want to begin with is by sharing with you the fuller context. Now, I did that with the gospel lesson, but there's even more to it. And I usually try to take our lessons and put them back into the context because then it helps us to understand so much more clearly what specifically God has recorded for us in those words. But if there was a lesson that begged for more discussion on context, it's this one. Not only the immediate context of Mark chapter 8, 
but the fuller context. You heard a lot of it in the gospel lesson, but the one part you didn't hear were the opening verses to chapter 8, and that's where the miracle of the feeding of the 4,000 takes place. It was just immediately before our gospel begins. And again, hopefully, as you heard me read the gospel lesson, you were reminded there were two separate distinct instances where Jesus fed thousands of people with just a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. The one with the feeding of the 5,000 had taken place a couple of weeks earlier, and this one took place just moments before they actually had the conversation with the Pharisees, and then they got in a boat to journey to the northeast corner of Galilee. That was the thing that we began with that was the opening to our gospel lesson. The Pharisees coming to Jesus, and remember the Pharisees were the major religious sect in the nation of Israel, came to him challenging his claim as being Messiah. Show us a sign from heaven. And this just boggles my mind. He just got done feeding thousands of people, beginning with such little resources. How can they not see that? And immediately something goes off in their head going, this man is different. But then again, I did admit to you as we open that there are a lot of times where I'll be looking straight at something and I can't see it myself. So I don't want to be too hard on them because it's something that we all struggle with. And yet, the reason why they're requesting a sign is because they didn't want to trust that Jesus was the Messiah he claimed to be. They didn't want him to be their Savior, because according to the way they were thinking, he was doing it all along. After that conversation, Jesus does get in the boat with the disciples. They start to head north uh, towards the lesson and area of our text, and he has that unusual conversation. And again, we have another example of people not being able to see what's right in front of their eyes. Jesus warns them about the yeast of the Pharisees and King Herod. He's talking about the deception, the lies of both the religious leaders and the political leaders within their time in the nation of Israel. And you might also recognize how easy it is for people, for a population to be swept along by promises or supposed truths that somebody in positions of power might offer them. And I would say this is more sometimes a problem with the church than it is with other areas of our life. Because if the pastor said it, it has to be true. It's incumbent upon us, as it was upon the disciples, to do our research, to look into God's Word, to make sure what we're hearing, what we're being taught is true. Because of the failure of so many to do it, that leads to the need to understand the larger context where we find Mark chapter 8. The larger context can be explained to us in what is called Jesus' retirement to the north. So for the first six months of the third year of his public ministry, Jesus pretty much stayed away from Jerusalem. He spent most of his time in the region of Galilee and the surrounding areas, and you can see some of the journeys he was taking. Well, our lesson puts us right about here, and then you see that northern journey towards Bethsaida. At this time, Jesus is at the height of his popularity. Everybody seemed to know who Jesus was. But that also presented some problems. One was those who didn't like Jesus. His enemies hated him, and they were looking for more and more ways to trap him, to undermine his work, to get rid of him. There was also that problem amongst the general public, because after centuries of false information, of misteaching by their religious leaders, the people were also expecting a different kind of Messiah. Not the one who had come to rescue them from hell and damnation, but somebody who came to make their lives this beautiful, almost paradise on earth again. And so what Jesus spent the bulk of his time doing during this period of time was educating people about what the promise of Messiah really was. 
and how he has so perfectly fulfilled that. He didn't come just to make their lives a little bit better, though God does want to bless our earthly lives and wants us to enjoy all of the things that he gives us here and now, but that's not the end game. That's not the final work of Messiah. His work is to save us from our sins and ultimately to reunite us physically and visibly with our loving God. The last thing we should understand is Jesus spent a good deal of time, especially with his disciples, showing them things and teaching them exactly what it meant for him to be Messiah. And there still remained a lot of confusion, as we saw in the gospel lesson. And the reason for this very specific and intense education is Jesus knows this is his final year of ministry. Pretty soon, the cross is going to come, and these would be the very leaders and teachers that God would ask to help guide the Christian church into the future. And the way to do that is only with God's truth. So he shows them things in this lesson. He shows us some things too, all intended to offer us this new perspective. Okay, as we dig into our text, I, I just want to be honest and say the first couple of verses are pretty straightforward. It doesn't require a lot of intense uh, work with the original languages, but there are a couple of things that are very helpful to us. And one is the fact that as they start this leg of their journey and reach this little fishing village of Bethsaida, uh, immediately the people bring this blind man to Jesus and they want him to heal him. Uh, what's interesting is Mark doesn't offer us any information that there were introductions or that somebody had run ahead and said, hey, Messiah is coming. These people just knew who Jesus was and what he could do. That verifies the fact that he was at the height of his popularity. But there's some other things that we need to consider as well. And because Jesus didn't want to open any doors or offer any opportunities for his enemies to undermine his work as Messiah, there's this question, at least in my mind, so how did he know this wasn't a trap? Because the Pharisees had done that on, on different occasions where they would bring somebody who needed a miracle and kind of set him up, especially on, on Sabbath days. How did Jesus know that? Well, Mark doesn't tell us that Jesus read their minds or if it was just obvious from how they acted. But the verb that Mark uses talks about the sympathetic feeling they had towards this blind man. They knew Jesus could help him, and so they brought him to Jesus fully expecting. Uh, having heard whatever they heard about Jesus, they knew he was a man who cared and that he wouldn't just simply brush this situation off like so many others might have, which then leads to this why did Jesus take this man outside the village? Why didn't he just perform the miracle right then and there? Well, that goes to the other part of the context. Jesus was working very hard to educate the people what Messiah was about. Sometimes he would perform his miracles very publicly, let everybody see what was going on. And then there were times that he would do that very privately, almost between him and whoever needed his help. And of course, the disciples oftentimes would be there as well. And since he's working so hard to make sure that the people are understanding better what it means for the promise of Messiah to come to fulfillment, he chooses to lead the man outside the village, outside of the view of most of the townspeople. Now that's the situation. And then this is what happens. Mark tells us that Jesus spits in his eyes and put his hands on the man, which is pretty standard fare. And I need you to understand that. Jesus didn't just walk around spitting at people and touching them, anybody in his path. When I say it's standard fare, it's pretty common practice for a rabbi when he's asked to heal somebody to do things like this. Um, there was a thought back in those days that the spit of a, of a rabbi contained some miraculous power. 
Uh, and not that Jesus is trying to feed into that, but he's directly showing that he's the one that's doing this healing. And he puts his hands on the man, not because it would somehow offer any greater power or abilities to physically heal this person. All he needs to do is God is say something and it happens. But he's specifically showing this man exactly why he's about to do this miracle. And it's not just to give him his eyesight back. It's a very specific and direct way for God to show this man that he cared about him. That he had come not just to give him his physical sight, but to actually restore his spiritual sight. That he, as Messiah, had come out of great love to pay for this man's sins and the sins of the rest of the world so that we could all finally see again. And what you need to understand is, is Jesus is performing the physical miracle to show us all a bigger spiritual miracle. And that is the fulfillment of the Messiah promise. There's something else too, and it's reflected in all of these things that we've seen so far in, in Mark's record of this. You have to understand that a lot of rabbis in those days wouldn't have bothered with this man. Um, far too many of them were pretty full of themselves. And in fact, they didn't have the time of day for most of the common folk. And they wouldn't have done something like this without first maybe receiving some form of payment. In fact, if you think and read through the Gospels, you will find again and again that one of his biggest complaints of his enemies were not only did Jesus not follow their man-made rules, but he spent way too much time with sinners, with the common people. Now, I just want this all to sink in for a moment so you understand, because there is a flow of consciousness here that Jesus is doing something very specific because there's a lot of intentionality behind it. He's trying to educate the disciples. He's trying to show something to this man. And there's something in here the Holy Spirit wants us to see. If you ever found yourself in a situation where maybe you didn't have your physical sight, probably the first and foremost thing on your mind would be, God, please let my eyes work again. But the reality is, is our greater need is always to have the love and mercy of God touch our hearts as well as our minds. You see, Jesus is offering us something here that's far greater than just the physical healing. He's giving us insight into how the mind of God works. And that always starts with the heart of God, loving us more than anything else and willing to sacrifice everything for us. And sometimes that's going to mean that our lives become maybe just a little bit easier, but oftentimes it doesn't. Because God's way of thinking, God's heart for us, is not just a few momentary years or days of happiness. He wants that for us forever. Now, you need to keep that in the back of your minds as we now go through this next step, because as much information as Mark provides in very few words, what happens kind of leaves us with some questions, beginning with the fact of how this miracle is so different than so many others. And I say that is because Jesus heals this man in stages or steps. And I'd like you to just think from all of your Bible study, all of your home devotions, can you think of another miracle that Jesus ever performed where as soon as he said the words or as soon as he did the action that the full miracle was not immediately implemented? Even amongst the dead, all Jesus had to say was, get up. And it didn't take time. It didn't happen in little steps. It happened all at once. And I sat and thought about this. I can't read call another instance in the four Gospels and the record of Jesus' miracles that there's any other like this one where it happens little by little. 
And it's not that Jesus didn't put all of his power into this or that somehow he didn't do the right thing so that he had to go at it a second time. You know Jesus does things always with intention. There's a purpose behind it. And so as I'm going through this lesson, I'm asking myself, what is God's purpose to doing this in stages and in steps? Because after the first round, the man can see again, but everything's blurry. This, well, I see people, but they look like trees. And I get that now that I'm older and I need glasses to read. There are times where I'll look at something and then I put my glasses on and I go, okay, that's not at all what I thought it was. And so once more, Jesus touches the man. Again, this very physical, personal contact, letting him know, I'm giving you your full sight back for something else. Why? Why heal a man slowly and in steps? It all is answered for us in this one word that Mark uses, restored. And there are actually three miracles in the Gospels where Jesus gives sight back. We had one last week from John chapter 9, the man born blind. And this is one we're not actually doing, but it follows later in the ministry of Jesus, where as he approaches the city of Jericho, there's two blind men that he heals. We know the name of one of them, Bartimaeus. And Jesus also shows his heart for them by restoring their sight. But this one is unique, and it's that word that tells us that of the three healings when it comes to human vision, this is the only one that the man previously had the ability to see. All the others, they didn't have that, and so they didn't fully know what they might be looking at, but this man would have. If you've ever had eye surgery, you might understand this even better. And that as soon as it's over and you're through the recovering process, the doctor doesn't just walk into the exam room, rip off the bandages, tell you to open your eyes and have at it. It's done in stages. The bandages come off. Usually you have to shade your eyes because if you had full light right away, and usually they'll actually turn the lights down in the room, slowly but surely your eyes are allowed to readjust to seeing once again. Not only does Jesus show us that he perfectly understands the mechanics of our eyes, but he understands something else. That if all of a sudden we had all of this coming in, all of this information, all of this light, it's something that we could not handle. In fact, you see the real heart of God in the way in which this miracle was performed. And that if all of this had been given to the man all at once, it would have overwhelmed him in such a way, who knows what it might not have only done to his physical vision, but to his spiritual health as well. Which brings us then to this final part, where after the miracle's over, Jesus sends the man on his way, don't go back into town. And then there's that phrase, don't tell anyone. And that's the one that's intriguing. Why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus take somebody who would have been a powerful witness to the power of God and what he's capable of doing in our lives and tell him, shh, I don't want you to tell anybody. Remember the larger context. Jesus was working overtime trying to educate as many people as possible that he wasn't there just as a miracle worker, but that he was there as Messiah. You have to remember why miracles were performed. It wasn't just to help people, and though that was truly a blessing, those miracles were to show the glory and the love of the Son of God, the one required to be the fulfillment of Messiah, and that he was unlike any other rabbi or human being that has walked the face of this earth. None of the other rabbis could have performed this miracle, and none of the other rabbis would have had the heart for this man that Jesus did. 
And if he cares that much for this man then, we can only imagine how much he cares for us right now. Which leads to that promise of mine to explain why are those last few words in red. We've run into this before. That's what's known as a variant. That comes from the time when the only way you could share something that the Holy Spirit had inspired the original authors to write, like the Gospels, was to hand copy it. And you know if you've ever copied something down like a recipe or directions, there are those instances where you might make a mistake. You thought you read this word, but you wrote this word. That last phrase of that verse is such a variant. Now there's a way to determine whether or not that was truly inspired by the Holy Spirit and whether it should be translated in your Bibles. And what you're taught to do is to examine what's known as textual evidence, meaning is it in some of the oldest texts, in some of the oldest copies of the text? And then the other determining factors, is it in most of the older texts and not just a couple? This phrase happens to be not only in some of the most ancient, but in a lot of the ancient manuscripts. And so you can with full confidence understand that the Holy Spirit told Mark to write that down so that it made even more sense why Jesus explained to this man, I don't want you to tell anybody else what I just did because I need them to know I'm Messiah. I'm not just here for the miracles. Which is probably more information than you need to know about textual criticism and maybe you want to know what does it really have to do with our lives today. But to be honest, they're kind of the same because oftentimes it's the things we don't know, the things we don't understand that tend to frustrate us. At least I know that's what happens to me. If I can't find a solution to a problem, it ticks me off sometimes. And I'm that personality and the type of individual that I like to know what's coming so I can be prepared for it, which would explain pretty much the situation in we're right now. This point in our history, it describes this point in our lives. Let me tell you what I mean. It doesn't matter who you voted for. And it doesn't matter whether you're pro-mask or anti-mask, but right now we're finding ourselves in some pretty confusing times. In fact, as I take a step back and examine my lifetime, I have never experienced anything like this before. To be honest, to me, it feels like the entire world is losing its mind. Because things that I had taken for granted, things that I assumed were a normal part of my life, now seem to be suspect or, if you will, sometimes even the excuse for violence or whatever is going on in our lives. In fact, we're at that point where, dare I say, we're almost afraid to leave our homes for more than one reason. And it's not just the virus for fear we might get sick and die. But now it almost feels like if we step out and express our true feelings, or if we're honest with each other, we're going to run to people who are so offended they're going to make our lives a living hell. There are things that I assumed about this life, things that I had taken for granted, things that I thought were normal, that now feel like if you even mention them, somebody is going to cancel you for whatever reason, simply because they disagree. We've reached that point where I think Jesus was talking about where the love of most is growing cold. And unfortunately, sometimes I see that even within the church, or sadly, I see it more often within the church. Because one person has an idea about doing things this way and another about that way. And unfortunately, it feels like we're almost past the time where we can just sit down as brothers and sisters and have an honest and open conversation. Starting with, what does God say? In fact, I'll be honest with you. I suspect we might be on the precipice 
of a time in our history where the day will come where I won't be able to talk about things as freely as I am now. That I won't be able to say things like sin and grace. That I won't be able to express that there are two genders because I fear the day is quickly approaching when that will be considered hate speech, even though God tells us it's part of his love speech. If you don't understand what I'm talking about, I see the devil working overtime, and unfortunately, mankind is willingly playing along. And so I'm right now wondering what is going on. If any of your prayers recently have been like my prayers, I've been asking God, would you please open my eyes? Would you please at least see it within your grace to show me a little bit of what's coming. And again, I expressed to you, I I like to be prepared, sometimes over-prepared, and sometimes that's a blessing and sometimes that's a curse. And so far, the answer to my prayers has been no. And i got to be honest, there are a lot of days I feel like I'm flying blind. And of course, what I'm talking about is the fact that I would like God to reveal more of his plan and his will to me, and he doesn't seem like he really wants to run any of that past me, because this is genuinely an opportunity in a time in our own history and in our individual lives where our faith is being tested. And that's not such a bad thing. You see, what God is doing is the same thing of our lesson today. He's allowing us little bits and pieces of information. Our vision right now is a bit blurry because we can't see clearly what's coming down the line. If you read the newsletter when it next comes out, my article is about the fact that I've had conversations, even amongst Christians, that so much of what's happening is frightening them, and these are the end times. And whether that's true or not, I don't know, because all of those signs have been fulfilled since the end of the first century, except for the gospel being spread throughout the entire world. A good thing. And so I'm finding myself with this limited perspective once again, needing to simply trust God. That's a good place to be, like a blind man being led around by the love of others. God says, close your eyes. Let me take your hand. I'll lead you out of this village. And I'm going to show you things you might never have seen before. Tests of faith are good because they exercise where we're placing our trust. And just like the miracle of our lesson, God is giving us this vision in steps and stages because he realizes if he pulled back the curtain and revealed his full will to us, it would so overwhelm us we'd never want to open our eyes again. That comes from the heart of a very loving God. And so this blurry vision that we have of our history right now and what the future may hold isn't such a terrible thing. In fact, if we actually go to our psalm lesson today, we find so many reasons to rejoice and give thanks. And I know that's not the drumbeat you're hearing from so many informational sources today, but it is the message that comes clearly from God's Word. He made us. He made two genders. He created marriage and the family. God has blessed us in so many ways in this world and in this life. And it is all a precursor. It's the welcome mat to what God wants us to experience in eternity. Because he didn't just come as Messiah to make our life here a little bit better. And I know there's days when that's all we want. But God says, I've got so much more love for you.
I want to give you a new perspective, not just for the here and now, but for eternity. And this is the way I'm going to do it. If nothing else, this blurry vision of what's happening in our world, in our lives right now, it should make us stop and give thanks to God for all of the parts of his plan and promise that are crystal clear. That God is our creator, that God is our redeemer, and that God is our sanctifier. These are the works, these are the miracles that only God himself can do. And we have this amazing God with this vast intelligence who has made it his mission to rescue us. And so we give thanks to God that he has a plan and a purpose that is so clear to us that everything has worked out absolutely perfect in history and in our lives so that ultimately the end goal of this journey is heaven, eternity with God. And the more that we would fall in love with this world, the less that would seem to truly be the end of Messiah's mission. To make my point, and to actually bring us to a conclusion, hopefully a good conclusion that can help you leave today and live this week with joy in your hearts and hope for your future, is the fact of how many people put faith in this moment of time. How many people do you know, and maybe I'm even describing you, it was me just a little bit, so many people put faith in the flipping of the page of a calendar, as if 2020 we could leave all of life's problems behind, and 2021 was going to be this brand new day, and somehow miraculously where we're going to see things in ways we'd never seen before. And nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, I keep seeing these memes. I've test-driven 2021, and I want to take it back. Because this life can no longer be the perfect life that God planned or designed it to be. Sin saw to that. But God is greater and saw to the fact that he made a promise to send Messiah. And he came, not just to open our eyes for what's going on in this world, but to give us a new perspective for all of eternity. Cool. What are you doing? Running late for curfew? What are you doing? Making a late night sandwich like your grandma doesn't like me to. Your secret's safe with me. Mm -hmm. Same. So how was your party? Lame. I don't get what's so special about New Year's. Oh, what's special about New Year's? Yeah, I mean, you stay up late. Everyone says, Happy New Year, and then a ball drops. Let me tell you something. I remember a year uh, you were just born. It was a very difficult year. You may not believe this, but there was no toilet paper to be found anywhere. Gross. Well, that wasn't even the half of it. People couldn't shake hands. They couldn't hug. You didn't want to leave your house or you're afraid you might get sick. And masks. Everyone was wearing masks everywhere. You couldn't tell if somebody was smiling or frowning. That sounds weird. You, you couldn't go visit with family. Not even at the, the holidays, you know. Then what happened? Well, that's the best part. Then God got us through it, just like he always does. That's why I like new. See, God says, behold, 
I'm doing a new thing. New, my dear, gives us a, a different perspective on things. Like on toilet paper, I guess. <laughs> I mean, just because it's new doesn't mean it's going to be good. You're right. You're right. That is why we hold on to the words of Jesus, who said, uh, in this world, you will have troubles. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. That boop is why we celebrate new. Hey, Grandpa. Mm -hmm. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Don't hate him for turkey.